Surprise! Chris here. There's a little between-season bonus episode, one we recorded in September 2019. Another live history walk in the Ritchie neighborhood on the south side of Edmonton, aka Amiskwichi, Wiskaigon. Ritchie is an older neighborhood along Mill Creek Ravine with kind of a cool new vibe. Three curious Edmontonians gave us questions for this episode, Barb Bolstad, Dan Knaus, and Stephanie Drozda. And our producer, Trevor Schaufraser, recorded the event, but I did not host the walk. We had a guest host, a familiar voice to those of you who've been listening for a while, Omar Salafu. Let's find out as a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, by the way, powered by ATB. With that out of the way, here's Omar. Salafu. Um, this is Trevor here. He's going to be recording everything. So if you don't know already, this is uh, like Richie Historical Walk, part of the Let's Find Out podcast as well. So if you don't want to be recorded, then you've come to the wrong walk. <laughs> everything is going to be recorded. We're probably going to ask you some questions too and put it on tape. Um, but yeah, I'll start off by letting you know who I am. Um, I'm a local journalist. I've been working with Chris for a few years now, who's the host of Let's Find Out usually. And um, the show basically works with um, local people asking questions about history. So today we're gonna look into three questions that were asked about the community. Um, one about meatpacking and the Gainers meatpacking plant, which we'll be going to first. The second question about German immigration to Alberta, which we'll be going to second. And lastly, a question about naming natural icons um, for the city. So, um, yeah, you guys can follow me. Hi. Hi. Sorry, you're Anna? Amanda. Amanda. Yeah. Yep. And this is? This is Felix. He's four. Great yeah. name. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> hi, Felix. Can you say hi, bud? <laughs> Had a rough morning, you know. I have uh, almost four-year-old, too. Oh, yeah? And we consider Felix. Have you been in Richie for a while? I've lived here for about four and a half years, and I'm a member of the the board. So I helped organize today's event. Um, yeah, we've been here for four years. It's great. We, uh, I love that we're close to two playgrounds for him and for my daughter. And I like that we're close to Transcend and Piera and White Ave and buses. It's good. Yeah, we're happy. What about you? What neighborhood are you in? Uh, I'm in Queen Alexandra. Oh, that's nice too. Yeah. <laughs> I have similar amenities. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, why do you keep organizing this walk? Um, yeah, because it's a really popular event. People are interested in this neighborhood. Is like, It's really changing, but it's it has a really rich history of really amazing things that I don't really know too much about either. So this is my first walk <laughs> that I'm interested to hear about. Yeah. yeah. Is there like one thing you hope... Uh, the guests will take away today? One thing I hope they'll take away. Um, well, I, I mean, I'm considering myself a guest today and I, I hope to take away learning something new about the neighborhood that I just sort of take for granted and what it is now without knowing too much about its history and why, like why we had a meatpacking plant in a neighborhood seems strange to me. So I'm just really interested to learn about what Richie was and just try and inform the way it is now and what it maybe could be. So, 
like to introduce Michael Gurley here, who okay. works for the Provincial Archives of Alberta. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit more about how you got into being an archivist? Uh, I've, always, I've always been interested in history, so I thought I would actually be a history professor. But when I was doing the research, I found the process of working with the records more interesting, and then I realized there's all these people who help with that. <laughs> so it sort of shifted my career path into more of the archive side of things, which has worked out really well for me. So, mm -hmm. so the question is all about the Gainers Meatpacking Plan. Yes. So. How did the Provincial Archives get in touch with all those documents from the Gainers Pack? Uh, it's a long kind of story. <laughs> I guess the short version of it is, uh, the government of Alberta, they provided loan guarantees to the Gainers Corporation, or Gainers Limited, in the 1980s. And essentially, the company defaulted on the loan guarantees. So the government decided, in a very unusual move, to take over the company. They took over all the assets. So they took over the, the buildings, the, just everything, which also included all the records because they would need the records to run the company because they had to know what, you know, who owed the money, who were their employees, simple things like that. And when the company shut down, they sold it off, but we ended up with a lot of the records that weren't needed for going forward with the company. So we have a lot of Gainers records at the Provincial Archives. Mm. So where we're standing right now and all the kind of land this direction is basically where the plant used to be. So if you don't know what meatpacking is, do you want to kind of explain what that process okay, is like? Okay, a little bit. It's, yeah. uh, so essentially what would happen, uh, there was a railway spur line in the river valley. So they would bring sort of cattle, hogs, and apparently lamb, <laughs> sheep up here. And they would keep them in pens, which are basically right over there where those buildings are. And they would be kept there for a period of time until they were brought to the slaughterhouse and I guess you could euphemistically say processed and turned into, you know, ham, sausage, um, bacon, uh, all sorts of meat products as well as lard. They produce lard. And then the products were shipped out on the spur line, on the, it was the Canadian National Spur Line, out to, out, to, out to markets around, I think it was regional. It was more sort of this side of Canada, BC and Alberta mostly. So, mm -hmm. And... Uh I think you're wearing the hat right now, the Gainer's hat, and um, there's a lot of, I think, his, local historical memory of certain events like fires and protests. You want to go into kind of those main events? Sure. Yeah, the Gainer's company, it was founded in 1891 when John Gainer came to Alberta. He set up a butcher shop and gradually expanded his operations to meat packing, and he built the plant on this site in 1903. Uh, he eventually gave up on the retail side of, of the, the butcher shops and shut those down and then just focused on meat packing. So in my research, I determined there's, there's been a lot of fires here, actually, <laughs> about one every decade, one in the, one in the teens, the 20s, a really major one in the 40s. But the one that sort of has, I guess, uh, local resonance or still in living memory is the fire of 1969. Uh, they think that the kids were playing with firecrackers in the in the river valley or sorry the mill creek valley and um they uh threw firecrackers into this area and the 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 plant started to burn <laughs> um the story that people remember is of the of the, the cattle wandering through the streets so the origin of that is one of when the fire began a former co a former employee of gainers he was happened to be by when it was happening and he realized that the animals were penned up because it was the weekend so he released about a hundred head of cattle into the streets most of them ran into the river valley sorry the mill creek ravine um others just wandered the neighborhood <laughs> the last one was captured on the high level bridge about 10 o'clock it was blocking traffic so they managed to gather them all back but it was sort of a it was quite the scene where they could see uh, it could be uh, seen all across the city traffic was back up to to 99th and white because it was just it was just such a massive fire so 
Yeah, there was no one injured, although certain a number of animals died in the fire because they just couldn't escape. So, mm. yeah. And in terms of protests, uh, this site actually wasn't involved in the protests. Um, the Gainers Company, it was sold, it was a family-owned corporation until the 1970s, and then a Saskatchewan conglomerate owned it briefly. Then in 1977, uh, Peter Pocklington bought it, famous Peter Pocklington of Oilers fame. This was part of his holdings. Uh, and he wanted to sort of, um, I don't know, reinvigorate the industry. He had certain ideas about how the industry could be uh, reformed, revised, made more profitable. So one of the things that he did was he closed this site. It was probably the least profitable area. Um, so he closed this site, uh, but he'd also, at the same time, bought Swift Canadian, which was one of Gainer's competitors. He had merged them, Gainer's and, and Swift's, closed this site and consolidated operations on the north side. So this site was closed in 1981, but the thing that people remember most about Gainer's is the strike of 1986, when there were very um, contentious uh, labor negotiations. There was a strike. It was quite... Um, uh, there was a lot of conflict, <laughs> and uh, it, it so much so that it sort of reinvigorated the labor movement in Alberta in the 1980s. Uh, the strike was eventually settled, but it was sort of it almost dealt a fatal blow to the brand and to the uh, to the company. Um, that's when I think the government promised the loan guarantees, and then they. they uh, defaulted on loan guarantees and eventually um, the, the company was sold in 1994 to Burns and they shut down operations shortly after that. So, mm -hmm. Before we keep going, does anyone have any burning questions now <laughs> that they want to ask? Yep. I was curious about the Gainer block on White Avenue. Is that where he lived or what, how does that fit with the Gainer legacy? So that was where his butcher shop was. That was where his operations were at a period of time. And so they closed that operation like as a retail operation for meat. And I think this rented it out as, as office space or commercial space. And I think they owned it until the 1940s. And then there were a succession of owners. And it's now a provincial historic site. So it's the Gainer block. So that's it was a tea shop in the 1980s. And now it, I think it's the Funky Buddha is the nightclub. So in keeping with, you know, the, I don't know, the evolution of White Avenue. So when we talked earlier, um, you recommended a book. So if anyone wants to know more about meatpacking in very, very, very finite detail, this book is called Kill and Chill, and it goes into the entire Canadian context of meatpacking, um, from where cattle are raised and the best way to raise cattle to how they're transported and you know the historical evolution from pre-refrigeration to post-refrigeration and, you know, um, when it comes to answering the specific question of, you know, how the meat was sent and where it was sent. So most meat packing plants only butchered the cows, you know, killed them, cut them up. But then there was the whole process of getting it onto people's shelves. So they kind of had a system where they had kind of a, um, a different company that they would bring the meats into and kind of process it. So for gainers, there's actually a photo here, uh, a few photos of the plant here that would have been the um, plant where they would kind of bring their meat and kind of process it. So we're talking about processing, you know, pigs into bacon, into that kind of stuff like that, hot dogs. Um, and then they even had trucks too to kind of deliver the, um, the, the meat to different plants. It seems that the area, like I think the, when they first built the plant, it was on the edge of the town of Strathcona at that point. It hadn't merged with Edmonton. So it was, it hasn't say on the boonies where most slaughterhouses are, but gradually the city grew up around it. The area was zoned for residential development, I think, in the 1930s. So um, 
so eventually housing grew up around here and there were a lot of discussions about we have to get rid of the plant because it's too close to you know people <laughs> so but yeah a lot of housing was built up around here and uh, eventually that was one of the arguments for getting rid of the plant the land was essentially was about 12 acres it was just too valuable to have for this purpose anymore it was much more valuable as residential real estate and uh, that was one of the reasons I think that uh, Pocklington bought the, the company it was for the, it was a land deal it wasn't a business yeah because the smell of meat pa- I've I've lived beside meat packing plants so I know the smell not pleasant. <laughs> well, I can actually say that uh, in the records that we have at the provincial archives, a lot of them just came from the plant itself. I mean, they when they they just pack them up and put them into storage for years. There is uh, one of the notations at <laughs> in the uh, in the file says has a distinct meat packing odor. The records have a meat packing odor. Thankfully, when I was working on them, that odor had dissipated. It had been about twenty years, so I'm really glad to say <laughs> didn't have to deal with that. So. I don't think I can describe the odor. Be, I well, have you? If you've ever been to Brooks, um, you'd know the odor. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's not nice. <laughs> yeah, there is a fair bit of information about gainers at the provincial archives. I thought the coolest thing was that they were they pre-produced the gainers logo, this gainers logo, on like strike signs. So the company sued the union saying it was copyright infringement. <laughs> so we have that file as well when they're suing the company. So that's or the company suing the union. So that that that's sort of interesting. So mm-hmm. but like, it was several thousand people. So yeah, it was a, it was a big ma- it was a major local employer. Uh, we don't have employee records, but we sort of have statistics and newspaper articles about the economic impact of the company. So. Did the, did the residential like makeup change a lot with the loss of the meatpacking um, plant? I don't think so. I think it, Richie's always been sort of a, a popular neighborhood in a certain way. So I think, you know, by the time it was developed, um, you know, they, I, I, part of me tends to think with the removal of the plant, it was a much more agreeable neighborhood to live in, in the sense that regarding the smell, <laughs> it wasn't as pervasive. So it became a sort of a, a uh, sort of a, a more popular neighborhood or a less I, I'd say the prices probably rose after the slaughterhouse left so <laughs> were there any other uh, gainer buildings in the community owned by the company not that I'm aware of on the south side um, part of me thinks there's there's some old very old houses over here so I wonder if they were somehow connected to the plant because they seem to be like, um, you can't really see, there's one behind a tree over there that looks really quite old. So I'm wondering, why was that here? It seems to sort of date from the time when the plant would have been built. Maybe it's a manager's house, but it's really hard to say. Um, there's not, aside from the Gainer block, I don't think there are really any buildings left. Um, I think in the, when they set up this plant, he actually moved his former butcher shop onto the site, and it was somehow buried amidst, you know, sort of amongst all the extensions and additions. Uh, but yeah, I think aside from that, there's nothing really left of gainers. The only thing left of the, the meatpacking industry really is the smokestack, the kind of the Packers smokestack in Packingtown along Fort Road there. So that's sort of the last kind of monument to the to the industry here in here in Edmonton. There is still a meatpacking company in Edmonton. I think it's called Capital Packers. <laughs> Although that it's not, it, I don't know its origin or how it's, it's not really connected to the current company or any of the old companies as far as I know. So. Where did 
where did I get the hat from? Well, <laughs> in working, it, it sort of became a bit of a domino effect. So I worked on the records, and then I do collect things of various things. And uh, one day I was at an antique mall, and oh, there's a Gainer's Lard Pail. Oh, I worked on the Gainer's stuff. I'll just get this as a souvenir of, of, you know, having worked on the records. And then it's like, oh, they came in different sizes, so now I want a tower of each size. And then it was just sort of that, then it became a problem. So, <laughs> so there's, uh, there's a photograph... Uh, my office, we have, uh, in, in our offices, we have uh, sort of those upper cabinets for files, and there's a space on top, and it used to be empty, but now it's just totally full of uh, Gainers and Swift and Burns, which are sort of the major packers, or at least you the... Actually, no, well, I I only have three. <laughs> so this is this is my use hat, <laughs> and then I have my archival preservation hats at work. So, so yes, I do. And so every once in a while, I do look for sort of the material culture of gainers to see what's left. And it seems like lard pails are pretty easy to find, um, but then other things are more unusual, like advertising or the hats, or or just other sort of weird kind of things. Um, I have a like a what do you call it, like a pad folio, those little portfolio things from, I think it's from the 1930s. I'm not sure it's not dated, but then there's a later one from Swift's. Uh, a, a family was sort of clearing out their house and they decided they didn't want their, her, her father had worked for Gainers. Gainers Swift, I think, in, in the 90s before it closed. So she was getting rid of some stuff. So I, so I was fortunate enough to find it and buy it. So, so I'm always looking for more interesting Gainers things. They, ca- they crop up once in a while, <laughs> but I have to draw lines. Like, I can't, can't buy certain things. Like, I'm done with lard pails. <laughs> too many. Though too many, and they take up a lot of space. But other more interesting things I'll, I'll take a look at. So. <laughs> okay. If that's it for questions, we will move on to our next stop. So we're going to be going all the way across to the very end of White Ave to visit K&K Foods. It's basically to answer a question from Dan who asks, he wants to understand um, why Richie had kind of a large German population and also just curious about what drove German immigrants to the province of Alberta. So we're going to start walking. This episode of Let's Find Out is brought to you in part by Taproot Edmonton. Taproot is a local journalism initiative focused on curiosity-driven coverage of our city, cultivated by the community. Taproot writers craft weekly roundup newsletters that are a really speedy read about tons of stuff you care about, like local arts and the tech scene and what's happening at city council. They curate all the top headlines from the week and lots of little things you might have missed around town. I just sign up for the food and tech newsletters, and I find them super convenient. Like, in the food roundup, I learned how well the new Little Duchess Bakery is doing at the Ritchie Market. Your first two roundup subscriptions are free, and if you become a member, you can sign up for the whole kit and caboodle, plus other perks. Sign up to become a Taproot member is just 10 bucks a month or $100 a year. Head to taprootedmonton.ca. This episode of Let's Find Out is also brought to you by Skirts of Fire, Edmonton's only multidisciplinary arts festival featuring and elevating the work of women. I've really enjoyed their shows in the past, like the Polyqueer Love Ballad last year. This year's festival is bigger than ever with venues in Old Strathcona, downtown Edmonton, and Alberta Avenue. Highlights this year, The Blue Hour, a timely, funny, complicated, and ultimately heartbreaking play set in a small Alberta town circa 1947. That's at the Westbury Theatre in the Arts Barns in Old Strathcona. The Darina Harvey Band and other live music is happening at the station on Jasper. And music, dance, drumming, and performance art will all be happening on Alberta Avenue. Skirts Fire takes place from February 27th to March 8th. Festival passes are on sale now for just 38 bucks. 
That'll get you into the Blue Hour, one evening performance at the Station on Jasper, and as many by donation events as you like. Get your tickets today at skirtsoffire.com. That's skirtsoffire.com. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, just, I just realized there's a fire station here, and I was thinking if they built that fire station here because of all the fires. Because oh. <laughs> there is a quite a large fire station there. I didn't mark this far. It sounds like they kept that fire station in business. Sometimes I wonder, like, Mill Creek Ravine is such a huge network of trails and space that's green and beautiful. I wonder like, how it got carved out to be the way it is, like how the city decided, like, this chunk gets to stay, this chunk has to go. Um, I kind of get curious about that, especially up by the uh, Argyle and the Velodrome area. Like, that's a huge amount of green space that's just there. Uh, yeah. And it's really cool to walk up there. So sometimes I'm curious about that. But uh. And they were, they were saying the railway was in the ravine or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah. They had the big trestles there, which are now walking trails for the... the Rail lines. That would have so. been, I guess, yeah. how gainers access the train, the livestock would have been brought in, according to the map we saw. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. It's very cool <laughs> to imagine it back then. <laughs> so, that development might actually be one of the reasons it's still preserved. Yeah, it got kind of carved out back yeah. when That's they had the plant. So, yeah. 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 So, now, now I can tell you my uh, laborious journey to try to get them to be open <laughs> on Sunday. Uh, <laughs> So I guess I'll, I'll start with trying to answer your question about the early German immigration. We're just on the very, very far end of White Ave here. There's cars whizzing by, it's pretty windy. Uh, and we're at K&K Food Liner, uh, which specializes in German import food, as well as Polish, Danish, a lot of European countries have their products represented in this store. Um, and we're here to answer Dan's question about German immigration in the area. And um, I delved into it by looking primarily at this book. So it's from the U of A Library. It's a cultural history of Alberta's German-speaking communities between 1919 and 1939. Very specific. Um, but basically, there's a really good section there that kind of highlights how the German community maybe had it a little bit different than other European immigrants. Um, as a lot of European immigrants did kind of have, you know, pull from Canada to get them to come and settle the lands in the early 1900s. Um, German immigrants specifically used um, things called colonization companies. And I'm not kidding, that's actually what they were called. Um, the, the terrible act of colonization was uh, not viewed as badly as we view it today. But um, in southern Alberta at the time, there was a lot of land that was really good for ranching and, you know, growing crops. So. These corporations were designed to promote and coordinate immigration, and the government would give them land at a cheaper price that they could then turn around and go to Germans in Germany and say, hey, we have this cheap land, you know, Alberta's really nice, you should come here and move. Um, and Southern Alberta was really the destination, so people didn't necessarily want to come up north, um, but once the land got filled in the south, then there needed to be a reason for them to move up. So then you'd have the classic pamphlets that would say, you know, Edmonton, you know, come here, moderate weather, you know, not harsh winters, you know, you can, yeah, yeah, no mosquitoes, beautiful land that you can grow your family on and have all this great crop and, you know, build your community. So, um, you know, Germans came and um, a lot of them settled um, in and around the area. 
And um, uh, Richie at the time was part of uh, the city of Trathcona, which eventually amalgamated with Edmonton. And um, it's really just a part of larger Canadian settler history and how the West was settled largely. Um, and now we have a guest who was here during the early 50s when this store was kind of open and we're going to go into more of the history of the store after but I'd love to ask you a few questions about your experience and you were talking on the walk about how you know this area was called Little Berlin and yeah and the, the bus the Ritchie bus was called the Berlin special and the derogatory term for the newly arrived Germans after World War II was DPs so you would call the children or the parents all those DPs and it wasn't a positive thing, it was the displaced persons and they used that term. But these people were uh, very, very uh, industrious, hardworking. Um, they brought money with them or something because they established themselves very, very quickly. So the kids that were born uh, in the late 40s, early 50s, their grandparents would speak German, the parents would speak both German and English, and then the kids lost the German very, very quickly. They went to school, like I started school, my neighbors were the Canellers, and they had two children. Um, kids lost the German language very quickly, and it was not, we didn't have German bilingual programs in those days to send the children to. So when, when you say displaced person it's important to understand the context of global history world war one world war two and how germany was not an ally to canada at all especially in world war two so when germans came here or they were already here a lot of them had to look within their community for support because outside of their community they were viewed sometimes as hostily as enemy aliens who were put in camps or actively discriminated against. Um, so when I was doing my research, I shared an article with uh, Dan that was, you know, in the Edmonton Journal and a German Canadian was, you know, making a rant about being called a German Canadian. He was against having German in the sentence. He just wanted to be known as Canadian. This hard push to assimilate um, probably had to do part of how they were treated um, negatively by some people viewed as enemies of the state um, but also I think reinforced more of the kind of German identity within their ethnic group so that they didn't lose their own culture because of outside pressures um, that kind of thing um, so now on to K&K &K. so I came here and met with Bernie Krauss so he is the current manager, him and his brother run the business now. And their father, Albert Krauss, came to this community in the 1950s. So he got his Masters of Butchers, which is a designation in Germany, um, in the 40s. And then once he got that, um, one of his family members was already settled here and told him, hey, why don't you come to Canada? You can open your own butchery. And um, that's exactly what he did. So he came to the community. And at the time, uh, Bernie was telling me that there was three butchers on White Ave, only on White Ave. Um, but obviously there aren't any more. This is one of the only places left. And in the back, if you can see, there's um, like a deli where they offer specialty meats and you can buy uh, various different, you know, specific German products. And Bernie told me that the reason why they're still around and the other ones aren't is that they were able to adapt. So it wasn't always geared towards European import foods. There used to be a grocery store here where they would offer produce and you can just get regular stuff like a regular grocer. 
But um, when they saw a decline in that market, probably because Safeway and other places were becoming bigger, they decided to pivot and really become focused on uh, offering import goods, so specialty products that people really can't get anywhere else um, other than here. So it's been a family-run business. Uh, so the father, Albert Krauss, now Bernie Krauss. And right when I was here a few weeks ago, Bernie was telling me that his son, Kevin, is planning on taking over the business right away and um, keeping it in the family. And um, when I asked them, you know, how running a family business is like, um, I kind of got a sigh from him and he said, you know, it can be hard because in any business you'll have disagreements with your partners, but you, if you're a family, you have to go to Thanksgiving dinner and, you know, try to be cordial and they all have kids and you have to, you know, work together to make things work out. But uh, yeah, they're very proud of um, what they've accomplished. And when I asked them about their German culture and what makes German culture unique or different, um, all he was able to really tell me was that um, hard work is important. <laughs> and he said that's the biggest lesson that his dad taught him was to um, work hard and keep doing that and eventually you'll see success. And um, the father, uh, Albert, passed away a few years ago, but um, his legacy lives on within the store. So um, are there any questions about um, kind of everything I just covered here? Yep. Yep. I'm just curious, um, like I assume that there's a big wave of immigration after the Second World War. Was that when most of the German community originally came, or was, there, was it a German community prior to the war? Like what, like what time periods are we talking about? So there, there, were, there was a few waves um, of immigration. So you had a wave um, like before, like in the early 1900s, before the World War I even happened, um, just with these colonization companies, people coming to settle the land. Um, you also had a lot of religious um, uh, groups as well that came here. So me and Dan actually went into a little bit of the history of the Moravian Church and how they were a pacifist church. So they weren't necessarily accepted in a lot of European communities. So they settled in Canada and other countries and kind of brought over their religious community with them as well. And then you have, you know, people who fled war in World War One, And then in the Cold War context, um, it really, what I heard about was a lot of the um, Eastern European uh, Germans, or sorry, East Germans. Oh, there's so many here. <laughs> sorry about that. Hello. Hey. The tour? Yes. Are you kept <laughs> I was in here painting. Well, and I'm gonna count my <laughs> Kevin. Kevin. Yeah. I'm Trevor. Trevor? Yeah. Nice to meet you, Trevor. Thanks so much. Hi, you bet. Hi. I, I look horrible. I was just painting. Are you Kevin? Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. I'm Omar. Oh, nice trying to get in touch with you. Yeah, nice to meet you too. We were just talking about your dad. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Oh. Can you describe the smell? <laughs> yeah, it kind of smells like peppermint almost. Um, yeah, sausage. Uh, I'll turn to smoke, smoke something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He could tell us about these generations. <laughs> <laughs> I'll hear like you came the 1 p.m. one, because we didn't get this in the morning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. yeah so I'll wait till he gets back and ask me. Yeah, there you go. You mind if I ask you a few questions? Go ahead, I might know the answer. Okay. So, when did you kind of get started in the business, or has it always been a part of your life? Well, this business I've started here 22 years ago. I've been in business for 22 years. Um, I managed the place about 15 years ago I took over. 
and then I actually just bought the place September 1st. So, yeah, so. That's great. Yeah. And um, what, 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 what are some of the things that you offer here that you're really proud of? Uh, a lot of European groceries that you just can't find. You can take a look around that you can't find anywhere else in the city. Uh, we do our own deli products in store as well, um, which a lot of places don't do in the city as well. Nice. Yep. Do you mind if we just walk around? Yeah, why <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, let's. Oh, yeah, and your, your father as well. I was, I was talking to him and he was telling me how. You know, uh, he, Bernie? Yes, yeah. He's your uncle. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, what, what, what has that been like having that relationship within the family to be able to pass it down through generation it's, to generation? Uh, good and bad. <laughs> it's, it's family, so, you know, it can have its uh, heartaches, but most of the time it's fantastic. Like, I love what I do. So I come to work every day, and the people who work here are great. Family's great, so yeah, it's fantastic. Your grandfather started him and his two brothers. Yeah. Can you yeah. tell us about him? Um, he came over. Actually, his first brother Rudolph came over in '52, I believe. Uh, they started the first K and K in Lauderdale in '56, and then they had another one on 76th Ave. It used to be Arnt's Food Market, I believe. I think it was. Yeah, it was kind of like shaped like a barn. It was just a little convenience store. They took that over, and then they built kind of the strip mall over the years uh, in the 70s and 80s. And then this place here we took over in 62. And is that yeah. still in the family, that strip mall yeah. ownership yeah. of the mall? Yeah, yeah, it's still there. Yeah, I actually would like, I want to start another, because we used to have a deli over at 76th yes. Ave. I want to bring another one back actually pretty soon here, because in that area now, I think that's what it's missing is, is the deli over there. Yeah. Anybody else have questions? Did any of your people, brothers, own the, the German import store, et cetera, that used to be? Uh, no, no. That was a totally different yeah. family that it was involved with the bakery, the imports, yep. the meat shop. Yeah, and there was another one, two Charlies, down the way there, too, and that one's closed as well. went down there in the 50s. There were yep. other German, yep. I mean, there were a lot of German stores. There was a long way to have. There was a whole bunch of them. We're basically the last one left. Yes. Yep. Yep. And we've spread out, too. We're not just German anymore. We're also, no, like... Yeah, we're like German, Polish, Danish, Czechoslovakian, Croatian, like all different kinds of places we have products from. Yeah. Was it a really hard time for your grandfather to come here and start a business at that time? Um, yeah, they worked hard, that's for sure. Um, he actually, when they started first, he actually got a job in a meat packing plant. I think it was over at uh, 96 Gainers, I think it was, yeah. yeah. He, he worked in there for a while and then kind of saved up enough money and then got his first store and then at nighttime he'd build a house and like he basically worked 24 hours a day almost I don't even know if he slept but yeah yeah he worked really really hard to get everything going yeah. can you tell us why they ended up in Canada is it after the war uh, yeah and what part of Germany or where were they from um, I couldn't tell you the name of it because I, I speak a little bit but not enough to actually try and pronounce it uh, no they actually were born in Poland first Right, yeah. Really no yeah, there's no borders and stuff. Yeah, Germans. yeah, and uh, they came over basically. I think just like everybody else, they just wanted a better life than After what they that. had. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was in '52. Yeah, basically, yeah, yep. And then they came to Canada first, and there was three brothers, and they call it K and K, which is Kraus and Kraus, but they wanted to call it Kraus and Kraus and Kraus, but three three Ks with the Germans, and yeah, so so we just left with the, left with the two. <laughs> Yeah, 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 stuck with the two Ks, but yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he worked. He worked really hard. He, uh, yeah. And then my son, he's actually started to work. He's 16 now, and he's going to go to university in the fall and actually take food science and business, so he can take over after I'm done too. 
So, is there yeah. a, is there a memory of your grandfather you'd, you'd like to share? Um, there's one where uh, he he somewhat taught me cutting, but I kind of knew cutting at first as well. And when I cut with him. He used to use this knife that was about this big, which is not normal for just boning stuff out. It's like this big, long knife. Yeah, yeah just it's really, really long. And I would sit there and just be hacking away like crazy. And he'd just take this long knife and take just two swipes and he was done. And it's like, I'm going five times as fast and I'm still not finished faster than you. So I learned lots of things from him that way, little, little things like that. But yeah, he, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Take a look around. Well, yep. We don't have a lot of time, okay. so everyone has like two minutes to quickly, and then we got to go back. But yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that's great timing. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing timing. Okay, well I think we should start heading back now. We're just gonna go back to the community hall for our last tour. But thank you so much. You bet. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. Yes. They have great Christmas stuff to eat. Um, so we're in the Ritchie Park, right adjacent to the Ritchie Community League, and there is kind of a canopy of trees just above us, and a nice little baseball diamond where a few gentlemen are LARPing right now. <laughs> so clashing swords and uh, yelling really loudly. But it's a good time. It's nice. Yeah. We're here at our last stop to answer Stephanie's question. So do you want to give the group a rundown <laughs> sure. of what you're asking? Um, so my question was, uh, what would Edmonton's natural history icons be? So part of it was, um, what part of our natural history has maybe shaped the development of Edmonton? What things might be important to in, in indigenous cultures in the area? Um, but also I think like we really like to anthropomorphize things. So what maybe if a squirrel has good Edmonton characteristics or something like what, what real, and that says a lot about our relationship with nature around us too. Yeah. Just curious about those connections. Okay. So Edmonton's icon. So we kind of agreed on, you know, we're going to pick a mammal, a bird, and then a tree and a plant. So when I was researching this, I found out that Edmonton has an official flower. So the marigold is actually Edmonton's official flower. And when I looked at the city's website, they kind of had a few reasons for picking it. And I have my notes with me, but my phone just died. So I'm gonna to try to remember <laughs> off the top of my head. One of the reasons why was because the species has a very diverse kind of uh, range. And the city people were like, this represents Edmonton's diverse community. You know, we have a lot of communities here. And uh, I'm blanking on the other reason. Oh, the Klondike. Yes, it represents the Klondike rush of the 1850s, I believe, um, as well. So when I was looking into it a little bit more, the provincial uh, government also has a little document that has, you know, a little bit more about historical trees there. And when you look at the different trees, a lot of the reasons why are, are in a similar kind of dry fashion um, and you could tell that it was like a small group of people kind of deciding what the trees were. Um, one of the trees, the provincial tree, I can't remember exactly what it was, but the very last sentence was, um, and all of this makes it a good fit to be this province tree. And I was like, wow, this is <laughs> you know, very, very succinct. Um, and Edmonton has thousands and thousands of species of trees. And I wanted to find something that was meaningful um, to represent the community. 
and I kind of hit a dead end. But Stephanie sent me a tree, an Ashburn tree, which is actually mountain ash tree, not Ashburn. Right by, exactly, why I, why we came here? This is right here. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about like why you sent me so, I was, after we had met, I was thinking, okay, what would what tree would I pick? Because obviously there's lots of native species um, in, all, in our river valley and then lots of, um, non-native because we're an urban environment so we planted lots of different varieties but I was thinking well I have a mountain ash in my yard um, and there's probably like at least five others on the block that I live on any given place in Edmonton there's lots um, there's both native uh, variety and um, introduced um, and I think there was an article from Salisbury Greenhouse that described it as uh, a tree for four seasons so in the springtime it blossoms um, obviously the leaves are green um, and then in the summer the berries come out in the fall the leaves change color it's very beautiful and then in the winter the berries are still there and they provide uh, a food source for birds um, particularly bohemian waxwings that if you've ever seen them flying in flocks of hundreds they'll descend upon a tree and just sort of eat it bare and so it's kind of a good representative of um, Edmonton and how we have four distinct seasons and it's kind of embracing all four of those. I don't know, I like the sentiment of that, so. <laughs> I think that's something we can all agree on. <laughs> um, so, so now that it comes to naming the mammals and the birds, I have Dale over here from Wild North. Do you want to give us a little introduction about what kind of work you do with Wild North? Sure, I'll give everyone the, the nickel rundown. So uh, I'm one of the directors of Wild North. Uh, we're a wildlife rehabilitation organization. Uh, the only full-scope organization of its kind north of Red Deer uh, here in Alberta. Uh, so that means that we take in roughly 3,000 injured and orphaned animals a year, and we do our best to fix them up and get them back out into the wild uh, where they belong. So that keeps us very, very busy. We have uh, an animal hospital here in Edmonton and then a rehab facility out in uh, Spruce Grove in, in Parkland County. So um, I've only been with the organization for three years now, and uh, prior to this, uh, I owned the largest wildlife rescue and education park in Ontario for 15 years, and I've been doing this kind of work for about 35 years. Uh, so when Omar approached me to uh, ask me to, to put some thought into what I thought would be sort of an iconic uh, Edmonton animal uh, uh, or bird and mammal, um, I did so and uh, I came up with uh, what I think are uh, a couple of uh, pretty good candidates and, uh, and some runners up too that I'd like to tell you a little bit about. Yeah. Um, so in your career as an educator in Ontario, you not only rescued animals, but also, like I just said, educated people on it. Do you want to talk a little bit about like how you use the animals that you rescue to kind of present people with those kind of relationships? For sure. So uh, my wildlife center in Ontario was quite unique. Uh, we worked uh, a lot with the Ministry of Natural Resources and the OSBCA in the rescuing of uh, uh, confiscated ex exotic pets that weren't being looked after very well. Ontario has a very poor legislation when it comes to keeping these exotic creatures. Uh, so I was contracted out to take things like tigers out of basements and uh, alligators out of bathtubs and venomous snakes and you know, all these sorts of crazy things that, that people have in their homes. And the smaller, well-socialized, more suitable animals um, that we um, confiscated, I incorporated into an educational program and started Canada's largest live animal outreach program. 
Uh, in our first year, we traveled to over 600 schools with these animals uh, in an effort to help people learn how they can live in harmony with uh, wild creatures and also to give them an idea of what does and what does not make an appropriate pet. Um, so you can imagine, uh, and the other larger animals we held until those court proceedings went through and we placed some incredible zoos or wildlife centers where they had the resources to, to look after them properly. So uh, we traveled around with those animals uh, uh, up until uh, 2014, um, where I was going to 1,300 schools, libraries and seniors residences all over the province uh, with our message of conservation. And in 2014, unfortunately, the Ontario government decided to build a tourist highway through my wildlife centre and uh, expropriated me and brought me out in 2014. Uh, moved back here to Edmonton, uh, where my family and friends are, and uh, hooked up with Wild North and been working there ever since. Awesome. Yeah. And in an urban environment like this, before we go into naming what you think would be Edmonton's iconic animals, um, what do you think is the ideal relationship between people, human beings, and the animals all around us in the environment? Yeah, you know, I think it's important uh, that we work uh, really hard towards living in harmony with our wild neighbors. Uh, you know, this was an environment, uh, you know, before the urban sprawl when we were here in, in uh, rural Alberta, uh, you know, we had a very different relationship with a lot of the animals that we have here in the city. Uh, you know, sometimes um, animals were perceived as predators or uh, of our livestock or, or pests in some fashion. In this new sort of urban landscape that's ever expanding, um, we're forced to live in close proximity with these animals and these animals uh, are forced to adapt. And I guess much in the same way that we were forced to adapt when our ancestors came over here to the prairies, you know, and we were forced to adapt to the climate, so are the animals. So I think it's important that um, we regard the animals as neighbors rather than pests and uh, and live with them in harmony okay so with all that said let's hear what you have to say with runners-up and the actual iconic animals okay yeah. uh, well when I was thinking about uh, <laughs> when I was thinking about animals um, you know I, I put a lot of thought into uh, and kind of explored these sort of iconic creatures that were chosen by uh, you know different countries uh, different provinces and states and, and different cities uh, from around the world and a common theme for a lot of them was that they often picked a very uh, sort of impressive or regal animal that didn't always represent the, uh, you know, the, the people in that area. And I'll, and I'll give you a, a very good example. Um, our neighbors to the south, you know, the United States, their national animal is a bald eagle. Now, a bald eagle is a very impressive bird. It's a big, you know, stunning animal. Um, it also happens to be mostly a scavenger. And uh, which is interesting, right? Because, you know, as opposed to its counterpart, the golden eagle, who's a great hunter, the, uh, the bald eagle mostly fishes and for the most part actually scavenges on carrion, things that are already dead. So, you know, when choosing a national animal, we have to look, you know, we should be looking more than just what it looks like or, you know, how impressive it seems to be and rather what its behavior is and whether it actually, you know, accurately represents the population. So with that in mind, I started to think about uh, Albertans. I started to think about Edmontonians. Um, our provincial bird is the great horned owl, which I thought is a lovely pick. This is our most common owl species in the province. It's a, a you know it's a very hardy animal. Uh, it's a beautiful animal, um, but I'm not sure that that represents. Uh, Edmontonians the most and, and, and it's already taken so we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that one. Um, if we're talking about those kind of really um, sort of stunning animals that people would perceive or be proud to be associated with we might look at one of our resident falcons here. We have a, a merlin here which is a relatively small diminutive falcon uh, but it's very very popular here. Uh, of the 3,000 animals that we imperiled creatures we help at Wild North um, 
about 200 of them are birds of prey, about 40 of those are merlins. So there's lots of them across the city here. They're beautiful creatures. Uh, they're quite small though. We often mistake them for songbirds and they're perched in a tree or on a, on a, on a, a power line, you know, looking for pigeons and uh, small birds that they might like to make a meal of. So that might be a good choice, but when I thought about that, merlins are migratory. And I thought, you know, when we're thinking about Edmontonians, we've got to be thinking about a hardy species that, that, that you know, sticks it out over the course of the winter, right? Because we get, a, we get a lot of that around here. So kind of ruled out the, the Merlin. When it comes to mammals, um, kind of an iconic creature that's quite controversial that I entertained um, was one that, again, had a very different relationship with rural Albertans than it does currently with urban Edmontonians, and that would be the coyote. Uh, you know, the coyote is a brilliant animal, it's extremely versatile, it's hardy like Edmontonians, um, and actually has increased its range as our city has grown. So this is an animal that, uh, unlike uh, wolves, other canines, and many other large carnivores, whose numbers actually diminish when we grow our populations, coyotes actually grow their populations as our uh, urban environment grows. So we can now find coyotes in areas like as far north as Alaska, where we've never had them historically, and they've been able to live there because they're living in urban environments where they're able to take care of or, or take advantage of what humans are doing, uh, getting into our garbage and, and all kinds of things, and, and be able to. So, so this animal is very, very adaptable. It's doing really well in the north, and it, and it might be a good example, but again, I don't think it's the perfect one. So when it came down to the two choices, one mammal and one bird, the bird uh, that I, I personally feel represents Edmontonian, uh, Edmontonians the best is also quite controversial. Um, but I really do believe it represents us the best. And that bird would have to be, for me, the magpie. Okay? So I remember uh, as a youth when I came from, I'm a military brat, and my, my father retired from the military and moved to uh, Edmonton when I was uh, uh, 13 years old. And I remember when I came to the West for the first time, the very first time I saw a magpie, I thought it was a bird of paradise. I, it was the most beautiful bird. You know, we don't have them out east, right? And it was just a long tail and all these iridescent colors. I'm just, just what a gorgeous bird. And you know, like anything else, I think when things are in abundance, we tend to take them for granted, you know? And, and I think people forget just how beautiful these birds are. The same way that people will look at uh, birds like gulls, you know, these beautiful big white birds. If gulls were an endangered species, we'd think they're the most beautiful bird on the planet, you know? But um, because there's lots of them, um, often uh, we don't treat them so nicely. I think the same holds true for magpies, you know? Um, but here's some traits about magpies, I think, that make them an excellent choice. Magpies are brilliant, adaptable animals. In fact, uh, intelligence tests uh, with magpies versus other birds has put them higher than a citizen birds or, or parrots in terms of their ability to figure things out and, and, and they're sort of the way we look at intelligence anyway. So very, very smart birds. They're non-migratory species, so they stick it out in the winter like the rest of us do here. Very, very hardy. So I really think the magpie and of course how numerous they are around here, how adaptable they are around here, and you know, they can kind of get a little upset when it's, you know, six o'clock in the morning and they're squawking outside our windows and people get a little upset about them. But honestly, beautiful, intelligent, adaptable, hardy northern species, really think that bird has to be the magpie. When I was thinking about mammals, uh, I also thought about um, a fairly common species that we have here in uh, Edmonton. One that back in the early 90s uh, we had less than 500 pairs of. They're now uh, flourishing in the thousands. And that would be the white-tailed prairie hare. 
and uh, we see a lot of these, uh, of course, these, these hares around the, the city. And what differentiates a hare from a rabbit, um, so hares, um, when they have their babies, they're born fully furred with their eyes open, as opposed to a hare, which is that sort of typical little pink creature that takes a long time for it to mature enough so they can kind of look after itself. So right off the get-go, these guys are very hardy. They're able to take care of themselves. They're quite numerous. Um, we actually have the highest population density of these guys uh, of any major city in North America right here in Edmonton. A uh, couple other cool things about these guys, their coats turn white in the winter, but that same species, their southern counterparts, the same species as we move south, their coats do not change white. So they do up here in Edmonton, which shows how well they are or how able they are to adapt to our, uh, to our winter environment. So these guys, uh, you know, are doing very, very well in the city. They're taking advantage and their population density is actually a hundred times greater in the city than it is now in rural Alberta. So if you're out in the country looking for white-tailed prairie hares, you're hard pressed to see one. In the city, of course, here, we see them everywhere. And uh, unfortunately, uh, those guys, like a lot of the other animals we're talking about, when we see them at Wild North, 95% um, of the animals we get in are there because of human activity. You know, and a lot of these hares get stricken by cars or they, you know, they get uh, imperiled. But we're able to fix a large number of them though and uh, get them back out there and belong. So I think it really has to be the magpie and uh, the white-tailed prairie hare for me. Anyway, those are the ones that uh, I feel represent us best. Yeah. <laughs> very nice, very nice. Are there any questions about any of these animals or about Wild North or any of Dale's work? Uh, so I also am from Ontario, and in Ontario we have these giant-ass squirrels that are black and kind of yes. evil-looking, and we don't have them here. We only have the red cute ones. Yep. I, I was wondering why that is. Or... So we actually do have, in Alberta, we do have that species. So the species you're talking about is actually called the gray squirrel, uh, and they're typically gray in color, although there are certain regions of the country where gen they're genetically predisposed to be black. So, for example, Ottawa is an area where we see lots of those um, black color-faced gray squirrels. Uh, we do have those in uh, in Alberta. Um, they're, they're, they're quite rare, though, and typically we come across a red squirrel, of course, which is the, this one we find uh, around here. Um, but it's just sort of regional differences. Um, and again, the ones we find here, um, hard-pressed to find the black ones when you do find gray squirrels here. They're almost always gray. But, uh, and even in Ontario, there are certain regions where uh, the black ones aren't that prevalent. Another question? Yeah. I was just wondering about magpie behavior and something I observed, and I don't know if it was just one of a, a, a time, but a, a bird had been fried on a telephone pole and in the morning was at the base of the telephone pole and didn't look like he'd been attacked by anything, just had died. But then later that day, a number of magpies came and they must have been there half an hour circling him, circling him and talking, like making their bird sounds and I thought I called it a, a magpie funeral right but it was I had never seen that happen before so magpies aren't a, a, a gregarious species in the same way that uh, some animals like to group together however they're very brilliant birds as I alluded to before and they do have their different relationships with other magpies that they would find in close proximity to where they live so no doubt the magpies that surround had some kind of relationship with to, to that particular bird so I, I, I won't pretend to know what they were thinking when they were circling the birds uh, but but certainly they have their own relationship um, you know the other possibility of course depending what time of year it was um, when uh, and this is something that we're, we deal with uh, actually we're just getting out of that season now we're just getting out of this this fledgling season right and so uh, um, magpies take about six and a half, seven weeks from the time they hatch to the time they're fully flighted and on their own, which is incredible. They grow that, that quickly. Um, but by the time they're about five and a half or six weeks old, they're fully uh, f uh, feathered, but not flying yet. And they're still hanging around with uh, with mom and dad and they're coming down and feeding them on the ground. So. 
you, you think this was an adult, eh? That, uh, yeah. Right. Yeah, you know what? V could very well be, and I'm sure they had their own unique relationships with that bird because they do with each other. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Thanks for sharing that. That's awesome. Yeah, for sure. Just uh, randomly, I don't know why I know this fact, but apparently Ben Franklin was really opposed to the eagle as the symbol. He wanted the turkey because because the eagle was a scavenger, and he thought it didn't represent the country well. Anyway, Isn't that know. interesting? Yeah. So so. The wild, the wild turkey, right? Yeah, yeah. So and, and actually, the wild turkey—they're—they're they're a, a great bird. You know, we had uh, where I'm from in uh, Ontario. So I was in Muskoka, just about uh, I don't know an hour and a half north of Toronto, and lots of wild turkeys around there. And uh, yeah, really cool creatures. And, and actually, smart in their own way, in a different way than a magpie is smart. Um, I'm not a hunter myself, but when, when speaking with lots of, of, of hunters in, in the hunting community, I know they're a very elusive bird and a difficult bird to hunt because they're very uh, very smart in that way. But uh, yeah, interesting that uh, Franklin thought it'd be a better bird than a than a bald eagle. Oh, and then on, I, I think magpie's a great choice. We were actually at a wedding last night, and, and someone from Ontario was like, I saw the most amazing bird. I was like, it's a magpie, it's a magpie. Uh, but um, specific to Richie, I haven't seen him for a while, but like the classic magpie is white and blue, but there is this, I guess, a, sub, a subspecies of the albino magpies, and there were some in Richie. There were some that used to come to our, our backyard all the time, and they're incredible if you see them. They're just, they, they're just as spectacular as a magpie, but... Yeah, this gray and white, and it's just, they're amazing. And there used to be a pair that were around this neighborhood, so. Okay, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, we have yet to see one of those at Wild North. Fingers crossed we never do. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, um, that's it for the walk. Uh, i just like to thank the Ritchie Community League for, you know, sponsoring this and bringing Let's Find Out. And I'd like to thank Trevor for recording all of this and, you know, and thank all of you for coming out to uh, witness all this nice history. So, yeah, awesome. So thank you. Uh, let's find if you just google let's find out podcast it should be the first result yeah Okay, a couple more thank yous before we go. This episode of Let's Find Out was produced by Omar Salafu, Trevor Chow Fraser and me, Chris Chang and Phillips. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can download all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. By the way, Omar and Trevor and I all know each other through CJSR, the community radio station here in Edmonton. My day job is actually teaching people how to make podcasts there, and we're about to launch our first original podcast series, That's Food. It's really funny and sweet. Check out That's Food when it launches on February 10th. I'm really proud of what our team has whipped up. Thank you to Barb Bolstad, Dan Knaus, and Stephanie Drozda for the questions for this episode. Thanks also to Michael Gorley, Kevin Kraus, and Dale Gino, and to everyone who's been supporting this podcast, especially Finn. Original music for this podcast is by the epically lovely human being, Doug Hoyer. Until next time, keep your questions coming.